like, how do you, how do you recover from that, you know? You know, Ben and I, Ben Martin and I were surfing the other day, and it was awesome. You get these revelations when you're out there on the water surfing with godly guys, man. You know, so the Holy Spirit just kind of comes and hovers over you for a minute. Hopefully not in a water spout form, and then, you know, but... But we were sitting there, and he was talking, he was edumacating me, man, about how to take my surfing to the next level. And I'm always open, man, for somebody to help me with that. And, uh, and so he was just talking about everything, everything is set up based on your bottom turn. You know, that you, you, you got to go down and get, just lay that rail into the wave and really get that energy to climb, you know, and then you go up and do what he does and, you know, snap it at the lip and do all that awesome stuff. But it hit me all of a sudden. I was like, Ben, it's all about the bottom turn. How many people get to the bottom and they don't really turn, man? They kind of get soft with it, you know? It's like, well, I want Jesus, but I don't, you know. No, it's like lay into this thing. Lay into the rail, which is the cross, man. Lay, go down to the bottom, man, and make a hard turn and come back up to the top and see what you're called to. Isn't that awesome, man? I love, I love revelation on the water. So it's good. I love it. It's so awesome. Man, you know what? Some people play golf. I don't play golf. I like to surf. So that's all good. You know, um, I want to dive into tonight's message. And um, if something you're going to pick up on just over the last several weeks is reoccurring statements and themes and phrases, you know, and, um, you know, there's a, an, an old joke that kind of goes around in different pastoral circles. You know, this pastor gets up and he preaches on this message and, um, the church loved it, man. They're like, you're hired, man. We want you, you know, and, and he comes back next week, man. He preaches the same word, you know, pretty, maybe, maybe a little variation and people were just, you know, just clapping and honoring him at the end of the service, man. They're shaking his hand. Pastor, so glad to have you. What a great word. You know, after several weeks of him preaching the same message over and over, they're like, dude, you got another one in the archive. <laughs> Can you update this thing? And he's like, well, I tell you what, when you start living what I just preached, then we'll move on to the next verse, you know? And, uh, you know, sometimes it can feel that way when you begin to hear certain things over and over. But let me assure you, with great repetition in practice wins the, the game. You know, I had a coach tell me one time, it, it's, it's perfect practice that causes us to execute in the game. It's not getting through, it's not going through practice doing it all wrong, thinking that it just somehow magically happens on game night. You know, the Lord is stirring us in this body because of the time that we're living in right now. And, you know, several weeks back, I started reading through the life of Daniel and reading through the life of Hananiah and Azariah and Mishael. And, and some of you know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and a bad brother, you know. <laughs> and, but here's, here, here's the deal. You know, these guys were living in a perverse world, a perverse time. They were living under a, a government, a, a rulership that was not for their God. And, and they were taken captive and they're trying to navigate and figure out how do I live for my God in such a context? Trying to contextualize the society that they were living in. And, and so we started there and, and, and I want to tell you guys, um, I, I, I wish... You really could separate your politics from your religion. I really wish you could separate your society from, how you, but it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. At least it doesn't for a person who really believes what they believe. And see, something we've gotten really good at in Christian circles is, is we, we say one thing but live a different way. And man, the Lord is bringing us to a place that we actually live out what we believe. We actually mean what we say. And, and I'm sorry, that affects society. It's supposed to. We are to be a fragrance, salt and light. We're called to be salty. I want to start all these t-shirts, man, all these different salt phrases. You know, it's just like a little dash of salt. Do you good? You know what I'm saying? Let's put a little salt on it. You know, don't overdo it. Then, then they don't want nothing to do with it. You know what I'm saying? Too much salt in your mouth. You're kind of like, I don't want that. That's religion. That's religion. I'm going to oversalt you. Okay. But not really help you have flavor to your life. You know, so 
And so we're in this time where there is a body of people that have to emerge and live out a life of truth. And man, we're all going to wrestle with our culture. We're all going to wrestle with our culture. If we're really going to live out a Christian life, you're going to, you're going to constantly feel a rub. You're going to feel a rub with people who you think you were friends with, and all of a sudden you're like, but wait a minute, they want to do this with their kids, and, and I don't really, I'm not really down with that. And then you feel this rub, and it's like, well, who has more of your heart? What controls more of your decisions? And are we going to be persuaded because of polls? Are we going to be persuaded because of political parties? Are we going to be persuaded? Or are we going to be persuaded by a revelation of truth? And so over the last several weeks, we've been going through a process, and, and I'm talking about engaging culture because I believe at the very foundation of this entire book, it was always from the beginning about engaging humanity. From the beginning, God created this world to be inhabited by people to reveal who his son was. Out of, the, out, of, out of God the Father came the Logos of God to the earth to demonstrate for sinful humanity what redemption would feel like and what mercy would look like and what forgiveness would feel like. He allowed he allowed humanity to be tempted and to, to fall into sin and to, to allow sin and destruction to come to the earth, ultimately to come in as a savior. That's awesome. We can talk about those things, but you know, something happens when you're actually the guy in the game. You know, you get these quarterbacks who are sitting in, you know, a locker room and you're watching the tape or you're, you're, you're watching your batting stance and you're, you're watching it or maybe you're a pitcher, but something happens when you're actually on the mound or you're getting ready to take the snap and all the eyes are on you and they're watching to see what is your move. It changes how you feel. You know what I'm saying? There's, there's something that happens and here's the reality. Your life is on display for the world to see. And what are we going to show the world? Are we going to show them what truth in love actually looks like? Or are we just going to keep telling them what to do? Are we going to actually demonstrate it for them? Where we're going tonight, you know, last week I released to you guys a message called The Overcoming Generation, Victory Through the Lamb. And I'm going to recap a little bit of that and go into what does the overcoming church look like as we journey through the book of Revelation. We're put here on planet Earth. Our, responsi our responsibility while you and I are here on this earth right now primarily is for one purpose, to bring testimony and witness to Jesus Christ, to bring a witness and a testimony to Jesus Christ. When we dive into this thing, we ultimately find out that Suffering and persecution and accusation and hardships come throughout this entire time of the New Testament when people begin to testify to who Jesus Christ is. You cannot separate the testimony of Jesus from suffering. And we've tried to do it for hundreds of years now. We've tried, particularly now where we are today, we don't want to suffer for the testimony of Jesus Christ. We just want to be accepted. Because who wants to feel rejected? I don't want to feel rejected. Who wants pain? I don't like pain. Come on. But the Bible tells us, Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Now, what are you going to do with it? 
What are we going to do with truth that's being revealed? I think what we do with it is, is we come in humble submission to where our strength comes from. The joy of the Lord is our strength. When you realize when the enemy is trying to suck the joy out of your life, what is he really going for? He's going for your strength. And you want to know what your ultimate, where your, what your strength really is, is you know the end of the story. You know that you're not laboring as those who have no hope. You're not living your life in suffering and enduring hardship as those who have no hope, but you're enduring it as a good soldier, knowing the hope which you're called. It's why the culture we live in today through media is fighting for your thoughts and your mind because it wants to warp and desensitize your hope. Proverbs kind of says something to the effect of that strong drink is for those who have no hope. Why? So that their minds can just be at peace for a little while while they're intoxicated. But those who are intoxicated with his love, those who are intoxicated with the revelation of truth, I will become like a drunk man on the street for the testimony of Jesus Christ. What you do does not matter to me anymore. You ever seen a drunk man get crazy? Come on. I have. I've been both. All of a sudden, man, they're flailing around, laughing and partying. They take one hit to the jaw. They don't care. They're like, bring it. I got more. Bam. You know? All of a sudden, it's like, bring your whole army, man. It's like, bring, I don't care, bring them all. You know? It's like, all of a sudden, you're ready to take on the world. Not thinking straight. See, that's what happens when you become intoxicated with Jesus. When we become enthralled with who he is, fear cannot control you. Fear has no grip on you. Because we're here to testify to who Jesus is. Last week, I started sharing about a historical look at the book of Revelation a little bit and, and started with Matthew chapter 24. I'm just going to recap this for some of you guys. And we looked at how Jesus prophesied in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse that destruction would come to Jerusalem. He warned the Jewish Christians to flee the city when this started happening or they were going to die by famine or sword. And we look at where John the Revelator more than likely left when that began to happen. That happened in 70 AD. There's more historical stuff that happened during that time, you need to understand that as you're reading this book right here, there's also something else that is paralleling and running alongside of this. It's called history. This is a message of theology of how we relate to God and how we live before God. And history is woven throughout its pages. But you also have to realize that as we are reading what is prophecy, there's also history that coincides with it. And so you begin to understand things about what's happening in the culture. Because, see, we're called to engage culture. This book does not disengage from culture. When Jesus was prophesying to his disciples about what was going to happen in 70 AD about this destruction, he was trying to help them relate to what was going to happen in their day. That Titus was going to come and decimate Jerusalem. That not one stone will be left on top of each other, referring to the temple. That it would be destroyed. And so Jesus is trying to help them have a grid and understand for what was going to happen around them. Jesus is still doing that today. I talked about how Nero uh, committed suicide in 60 AD and there was a crisis of leadership. Four different emperors in one year. Could you imagine if we had four different presidents in one year? Jacked up. <laughs> I, said, I don't know. Maybe we should just spin the wheel. This might get fun. All of that happened in one generation. I want to talk about tonight more specifically about the overcoming church. 
And I have a few goals that I, I want to put in front of you guys as we look at the book of Revelation. There's a few specific goals that I want to do in our body and those who are watching. The, the first thing I want to do is I want to demystify the book of Revelation. There's a lot of people that come to it apprehensive. It's so overwhelming and so much spiritual stuff, and, and it gets kind of gnarly in our emotions, and so people either don't want to read it or they, they hyperextend themselves and begin to try to make things out of it that it's actually not even there. We have to have boundaries in how we approach the book of Revelation to understand what it is and what it's not. One of the problems we have as we read this book are just straight up misinterpretations. And so I feel like we come to it humble as we should the word of God. Come before the Lord humble saying, teach me your ways. Your, let your spirit teach me truth. There's two different things that, that, that I want you to understand as we dive into the book of Revelation, the first thing is, I want you to understand, is it was written to a group of people to be understood in their day. We have to begin to look at some of the boundaries that, that we need to look at when reading Revelation. In order to understand how to be an overcoming church, because this book is full of telling stories Jesus given admonitions, admonitions telling the church to overcome, to overcome. Well, if there's something to overcome, then it means there's going to be some kind of challenge facing us. And if, he, if Jesus feels like it was imperative to instruct these believers about overcoming, I think we need to pay attention to it. And I think we need to look at some of these boundaries. And so I want to share some of these things that I do when I read the book of Revelation. Some of this is going to be just kind of teaching oriented. I, I want you to take the, 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 the meat of some of this, and I want you to be able to walk away, and I want you to be able to go read more and further your study. This is to kind of help get the ball going. So we're going to kind of teach preachers. Is that all right? Let's do that. The first thing I want you to understand when you're reading the book of Revelation is you should be asking this question, what did God originally mean to those he wrote it to? We get into a, a habit many times when we open this book that the first thing we do is we read it for ourselves. We read it to get something for ourselves instead of reading it. What did the author intend to write to the people he was writing to? What did he mean when he said what he did to them? And so we go through this process of, of how to read this word so we can rightly interpret it. And you go, well, you know, why is that important? Because we're going to come into a time and season where there's going to be rampant doctrine running through the earth. And what are you going to believe? Will you have the tools to change your own tire on your car? Or are you going to be dependent upon somebody else's and be at the mercy of someone else's commentary? You hearing what I'm you saying? So the first thing we need to understand is that John, the Apostle John, was writing to these churches in Asia Minor. And Revelation fits into three kinds of literary categories, okay? Here's the first one I'm going to throw out at you, okay? This is worth a buck fifty, all right? <laughs> Apocalypse. Woo! Let's get our guns. <laughs> So everybody thinks the apocalypse now, man. It's like camo and grenades and, you know, sounds like something for a movie. It's not that, it's, it's not that, that weird. <laughs> it does mean certain things. I want to look at Revelation chapter 1 and, and, and tell you where this, why this word is used. Revelation chapter 1 verse 1. Say Revelation. Revelation. You just used apocalypse. Man, wasn't that easy? Gosh, y'all are so smart. People pay thousands of dollars for that, man. You got it for free. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. The revelation from Jesus Christ. I like the way my Bible says it. The revelation of Jesus Christ. What version is that? 
See, that's the updated version. I use the 1984 translation for a reason. Talk about that on a different night. This revelation is about Jesus. This is an apocalypse about Jesus. And so what this is talking about, that the first thing you need to understand, that immediately begins to influence how I begin to read the book of Revelation because it fits into a certain Jewish literary culture of writing. I'm not trying to go like, you know, seminary on you guys, but here's what I do want to understand. There are basic principles of how we engage this word. That if we don't understand it, then somebody comes along later on and tells you their high revelation, and it sounds real spiritual, whenever it can be just real practical too, and it can maybe make more sense. Um, I want to give you a basic definition of apocalypse, okay? I'm going to read this to you. It's a genre of revelatory literature with a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being. What's that mean? That means somebody not of this world, not an alien. <laughs> UFOs, we're not going there, okay? But someone from another world is interacting with someone on planet Earth, all right? And they begin to expose them to that other world and show them vision of what that other world looks like. And they begin to have understanding. Why do they do that? So they can come back into this realm and give revelation. That's what you begin to understand why the book of Revelation is so powerful is this reality of getting a heavenly understanding in our earthly time. The second thing, not only is the book of Revelation apocalypse, it's a revelation, it's also prophecy. Where do we get this? I want to show you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this what? Prophecy. So this is prophecy. Sometimes in Jewish apocalyptic literature, they can be kind of different. But in this particular book you're reading, it's apocalyptic, it's revelatory, and it's prophetic, which means God is speaking to you. We better listen. God is giving revelation of that other world. It's being mediated through angels. It's being mediated through Jesus Christ himself. The Lord is speaking to John, and John is saying, thus saith the Lord. I anointed. I don't know what happens. Is when you get the chicken skin, man. I don't think it's just the air conditioner. So prophecy in the first century church, it was very normal in a worship service for the prophet to stand up and begin to say, thus saith the Lord, speaking in first person, I, God, speaking to you, church, listen, here's the word of the Lord. That would be normal. We don't always have that happen here. But we have had a little taste a few times here and there through myself. Corey has come at times. Even last week, Corey was beginning to give a few prophetic words in the house. And it's happened over time where God begins to speak oracles through a person to a body. And we got to understand how that operates in the church. That was normal in first century church. Today, if that kind of stuff happens, people start looking at you weird. It's like, well, is the Spirit of God inside of me? Is the Spirit of God inside of you? He said if two or three are there in his name that he is present. So it's not a lie if it's really him speaking. Prophecy and revelation is all throughout the book. And you can see in Revelation chapter 22, 6 and 7, I'll just slip over here really quick. It says, the angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. Why is that important? Why has it got to be trustworthy and true? Because this, this first century church is living in a superficial, super spiritual pagan world. Running rampant with all kinds of mysticism and all kinds of belief systems in this 
this polytheistic where there's all kinds of gods all over the place. And he's saying this is trustworthy and true. Let me tell you something. You're living in a world that's full of a whole bunch of stuff too. What are you going to believe that's trustworthy and true? The Lord, the God of the Spirit. The God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the word of the prophecy in this book. So we see Revelation is prophetic. It's prophetic. Uh, 22 verses 18 says this right here. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. So how should we be approaching the book of Revelation? I need to approach it with the understanding that the symbolisms in this book are not meant to confuse and be distorted and mystified. They should be understood. And they're trying to engage the culture of that day, the churches of Asia Minor. And it is a direct word from heaven to the churches meant to be understood. To prepare them. Let me tell you something. That word prepare, just let that sink into your spirit right now. What are you prepared for? What are you prepared for? You know, having kids, (laughs) I'm about to have one. Actually, my wife is. You're probably watching. (laughs) My daughter was not feeling good tonight. We got school starting tomorrow, and so they weren't able to be here tonight. And um, so you try to prepare for kids, but everybody who has kids, you're kind of like, I was not prepared for that. (laughs) But there are things you can prepare for. When you're given instruction of something that is coming, you have nine months, eh, maybe nine months, I don't know. These days, it's kind of, they shorten it on us, you know. But you have this framework of time to begin preparing your heart for what's coming. Baby's coming. So you start getting nurseries prepared, and you're clearing furniture out. At least that's what my wife's going to make me do this week. And you start moving stuff around, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, that don't look right anymore. I want you to paint this more preparation. And then I'm having to work on my character. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's all kind of preparation going on. And so you're preparing for what's coming. But you don't have a full realization of, of, of what's going to entail until that thing gets there. But, but you're, you've been warned. <laughs> the baby's coming. Prepare. That's what this prophecy is trying to do for the church. And God's trying to do that right now. for his church, to prepare them for what's coming. I want to say a few more words about prophets and prophecy. They should encourage. They should exhort, and everything should point back to lifting up the Lord himself. It should not be about me and my ministry. It should not be about how great I am but it should be how great the I am is, okay? We all have soul. We all make mistakes. And so one of the things we gotta be careful is we don't so quick to pick up a stone and throw it at the person who's learning to prophesy the same way we don't wanna throw stones at the teachers who's learning to teach. Or we have no teachers. How about throwing a stone at the dad who's learning to be a dad? We have, definitely have no dads. Come on, I'll get in line. So prophets are learning to prophesy, but I want to tell you this, things should point to him, they should exhort us to him, but don't misunderstand that everything that comes from a prophet's voice or mouth does not always give you goosebumps and make you feel good, because they instruct And they give direction and they help prepare and they help call people to repentance. Here's the beautiful thing. It brings joy if we repent. So if the Lord says, I set before you blessing and cursing, choose life. What does that mean? He's saying, don't choose the negative stuff. I'm just telling you the reality, the negative's there. Don't choose that, choose life. 
So when the prophetic voice comes, and you're going to see it in the book of Revelation, it can look very much like that. He's saying, you have in your midst, engaging in your culture right now, two choices. You can choose the Roman culture. You can choose the culture that you're saturated with right now. Or you can come out from among them. And you can receive truth and be made whole and be made right. We're right there today. So prophets should also carry a sense of responsibility that their words carry weight. And sometimes prophets try to see too much. Only say what God says. Say no more. That's where danger comes in. When we begin to say things and God stopped and then we continue talking. You know, I've been in scenarios and at times where I'm speaking prophetically to someone and I give like two words. I can tell you, that's a, that can make you feel weird inside to say two words to somebody and not give a greater explanation. But I have learned it's better just to say what God says than to add to that. That brings confusion. I've seen those moments where You speak one word to a person, you feel absolutely crazy for saying it, and then they just break under the presence of the Lord, and it brings joy to their life, and it brings healing and deliverance. Corinthians talks about the spirit of prophecy revealing men's hearts. Why? So that they would repent. You know, it's amazing. You can go do a miracle, and somebody will think that's suspect. Walk up to them and tell them what they had for breakfast yesterday and where they were sitting in the restaurant, all of a sudden you got their attention. That's supposed to operate in the church. Not so that we can build ourselves up, but so that we build the testimony of Jesus up. The third thing we need to understand about the book of Revelation, I want to lose you here. It's an apocalypse It's prophetic, but it's also a letter. What does that mean? It's a letter. It means it's real practical. It means you pull out pen and paper and you write on parchment. (laughs) It's real practical. It's tangible. It's words on a page addressed to people. So when you come to read this book of Revelation, You need to understand it was written by someone physically wrote it. John wrote it. He addressed it uh, of himself. He wrote it to a specific group of people. It actually has literary structure in it, man. Like they actually look at the book of Revelation and it's quite complex. So what do I want to mean? Why do I want to say this to you? Because John is not in just some high lofty super spiritual place and then didn't bring something that people could understand. He actually wrote something that has literary structure to it. Why is that important? It means I can read this and gain understanding and not have to be super spiritual to be able to understand what the word of the Lord is. That he wants me to get it. It's addressed to me. Does that make sense? Now, there are several different places. I want you to, I want you to grasp this. Um, John is told by the Lord to write down these messages, these seven messages, write them and send them to seven churches. Seven specific messages for seven churches. Now, I alluded to this uh, last week. I said there were more than just seven churches in the province of Asia. There were way more churches than that. But the reason why there were seven churches is we can see that numerically in that culture, in that time, the number seven speaks about fullness and completeness. That there are seven complete revelations and messages that have been sent and you can find them in those churches, which makes up the totality of the church. Makes it a big deal. It means that I don't just go through and pick and choose which ones I like to read 
and not read the other ones. It means, no, there's something in each of the seven churches that is relevant to that time frame of people, that what's going on in Smyrna is relevant for what's happening in Philadelphia. Okay? Here's what he says. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, and I'm going to throw, or she, <laughs> he or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Say hear. hear. Say listen. listen. That's what we're supposed to do. The Spirit, what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now, if you look at verse 11 and verse 17, it's redundant. It says it again. It says, he who has an ear, let him listen and let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. If you go to chapter 3, verse 6, let me look at this. I just want to give you just some, some scriptures here. Revelation 3, verse 6. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who God is speaking through the Spirit to the churches. It's prophecy to these churches. It's really important that they understand. Now, he goes on. After each of those statements, he makes a following statement. To him that overcomes. He says, listen, this is what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Now, if you've heard and you've listened, I'm instructing you now to overcome just so you don't think I'm lying to you. Right here, go back to Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Now, What we need to gather from this is that there is a range of different situations happening for each of these churches. Last week, I told you that the two churches that did not receive a rebuke or a correction from the Lord was, let's see if anybody was paying attention, what church? All right, all right you guys win. <laughs> Smyrna and Philadelphia. They were both enduring persecution and suffering. Something happens to you when you have to actually put some rubber on the road. You know what I'm saying? You actually have to have skin in the game. They really did have skin in the game. They were physically losing their skin for what they believed. Something happens to you when you actually have to be a witness and testify and somebody goes, I don't believe you. And all of a sudden, there's pushback. These churches were experiencing suffering and persecution. You are going to actually, if, you, if you're saying it, and you know that you're going to have to defend it, and your life is at stake for it, then you are going to really believe that thing. These churches were enduring that. So each of these churches had things that they could glean from each other. And no matter what was happening at the time in the church, those letters were being circulated throughout the region and being read by all the churches. Because here's what would have happened. Typically, the apostle John would have showed up in a worship service and said, thus saith the Lord. But where is John? On Patmos. So what is he doing? He's sending a word of prophecy in letter form to the church so that it's just like him standing there saying, thus saith the Lord. That's how good God is. Now you need to see how good God is, that when you can't get to where you would like to be, the man of God, God will still get to you. God will get the word to you. It's the reason why I'm so thankful that when I was doing a global search, a global look at Christendom throughout the, the globe right now, 
that there in, in around the 1901, there was a certain percentage of Christians and it kind of was just a pie shape of what the earth looked like. And I'm so thankful now that we see areas that had like 1% or 4% that, that, that had Christians there now having like 25 and 30% believers in areas of Africa and the Congo and the, and the Pacific Islands, all these different places in the Middle East, there is a movement. And you know what I'm here to tell you right now? The Lord himself is visiting those people because a physical person has not gotten to them yet. That the same God that visited John on the island of Patmos is the same God who would visit Muslims in another nation so that they can have an opportunity to repent because someone hasn't gone yet. Understanding some of the imagery of Revelation, I want to touch on this a little bit and then I'm going to close because of the time. One of the things I want you to understand about first century Asia Minor, gov governed by the Roman Empire, is that they were surrounded and saturated by all kinds of religious icons. They were inundated with massive statues and, and, and things that they would call their gods and deities. And, and they would do all kinds of things in order to try to capture the minds and hearts of the people. I, I find this really, really interesting at several areas that they tried to dominate in. The civic life, the religious life. Um, they would use religious architecture in, in their buildings in order to keep their minds focused on a certain thing. Rituals and festivals. And I want you just to understand something here with some of the imagery and symbolism in the book of Revelation. When you read some of those things, it comes across really intense or it looks real it's really visionary. It's, it's real heavy from a visual standpoint. That's for a reason. Because the people were being indoctrinated that their emperors were gods. Do you get this? Could you imagine if our president stood up on the stage and said, I'm Elohim. I'm God. Could you imagine? I mean, I think you know, a lot of people would be like, whoa, you know, it's like, you're crazy. I'm Facebooking you right now. You ain't no God. <laughs> they were living in a time and having these disciples and churches were having to engage a culture that was so religiously toxic. Could you imagine that the emperor standing like Nero standing in front of you saying, you will recognize me as deity. This is not a game. You will recognize me as deity or I chop your head off. I'll, I'll clothe you in animal skin and I'll feed you to lions. All of that was going on because there was a testimony to Jesus. Now, John, this is so beautiful to me that God would take John and put him on the island of Patmos and he would take him up into the heavenlies because somewhere in my Bible, it says that I pray that your will on, in heaven would be done on earth. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Who is this Roman Empire trying to get people to hallow? What name? Their name. And I look around our earth today right now, and I see rock stars and movie stars and politicians all vying for everybody's attention to honor their name. And the same thing was happening in their day. And God says, I'm going to snatch you up by the Spirit, John, and give you a heavenly perspective of understanding of what's operating in heaven. And you're going to carry that, and you're going to speak that back to the earth. Because, see, they have a misguided understanding of power and authority. And when you read this in context of Revelation, I want to paint for you a small, short picture. Look over in Revelation chapter 13. Revelation chapter 13. One of the things we see is this terminology about the beast. In verse 13, it says, And he performed, 
great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast. And he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. That's one of the primary goals that the beast is wanting to do is to deceive the inhabitants of the earth. Now, I want us to bring your attention to something. That's not, I've never heard this ever talked about in the church ever when talking about the beast and, and how they actually relate to the Roman empire and, and how it related to the Roman government, the Roman system. But this one point is amazing to me. Whenever I would read that, I would many times just associate some real spectacular supernatural thing. But you want to know how, how just sorry they were that they had no real power or authority? They would build a statue and keep the inside of it hollow so a man could crawl up on the inside and spit fire out of it and make its arms go like this. Somehow to deceive the inhabitants of the earth that there's like real power in this God. That's the best you got, devil? Bring it. Do you understand what I'm saying? That they were trying to use deception. They were trying to deceive the minds and hearts of the people. They put these these images in front of their eyes that were overwhelming. And it's the reason why God begins to write through the prophet John a greater revelation than the revelation that they were seeing on their day. It's the reason why he brought him up to heaven and he begins to say, let me show you how I see the woman Let me show you the woman, Rome, what she really looks like to me. I want to turn over here and look at this for just a moment. Revelation chapter 17. See, John is is taken away in the spirit, and he's, he's seeing things from God's perspective now, and he's going to be able to take that revelation and speak it as prophecy to the church. Revelation 17, 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on the many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemies, blasphemous names and had seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and the abominations of the earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of those who bore the testimony of Jesus. You know what Jesus was saying to John to give this word to the church? I see her, she thinks she is healthy, wealthy, and wise, and she is a whore. That's the way humanity thinks they see her, and she's a prostitute to me who is drinking the blood of my saints. Get a revelation of heaven, church. No, seriously, we need to get a revelation of heaven. We need to let a real apocalypse that's happened in this word become revelatory in our hearts. Let real prophecy guide our tongue and our attitude and our mind. That we're not looking at this culture that you and I live in today. I'm telling you, engage this culture as a saint of the living God receiving real words from heaven. A real saint. John was trying to elevate the Christians of their day about who they really were and what was really happening in the Roman Empire during that time. Let me tell you, you make a huge mistake. I'm going to say this, and I'm going to get back to this next week. You make a huge mistake thinking that the majority of Revelation was written for a future generation and not the one they were writing to. Make a huge mistake with interpretation. When you read the book of Revelation, trying to gain futuristic understanding, thinking that John was writing things that were for a later time, I'm here to tell you right now, our God is right in the middle of our mess with what we're going through, and the first century church was being persecuted for the testimony of Jesus Christ, and our Lord and Savior was unwilling to let them go through that time and not know the real revelation of who he is, that he is full of power, and he is full of glory, and he said, I'm coming soon. That's our God. Man, can we give him some praise, man? Come on. Hallelujah. Man, stand to your feet. 
man, I could stay here for another two hours. I think I will for the next service. (laughs) We're going to get into some of the specific things with symbolism and imagery. I wanted to whet your appetite with this, okay? When you look at the beast, when you look at the, the prostitute, okay? These things represented the emperors of their day. The beast and the prostitute that gave power to the beast was the Roman system that was all about monetary gain and power and control. Here's what I want you to understand as we leave this place tonight. The symbolisms are not what is timeless. It's the truth that's found in them that is timeless. Not the symbolism of the beast and trying to find out which nation is that. Is it Russia or is it so-and-so? But the truth of the reality that the same God that sustained them in their moment of suffering and trial is the same God that will sustain you in your moment of trial and suffering. And that out of those seven messages and those seven churches, you can find where we are right now today. I can tell you right now, some people say we're, that you know, we're in the Laodicean age. Well, I guarantee you, if you go over to Syria right now and ask them what church age they're in, they would say Smyrna. Are you feeling me? See, we got to get, we need to come apart and get a global perspective. We need a perspective of realizing that we are a part of a bigger body. We're not an island unto ourselves. We are a part of the kingdom of God. Man, when our brothers and sisters in Vietnam are under great tribulation, we should care. And what they're, the message that has been given to them may come to your aid the day that things change here. Father God, I pray tonight that, Lord, you would take us deeper into truth than we've ever gone. I pray that we would go past the breakers of fear and that we would really wade out into the waters where you really are, that as deep calls unto deep, you call us, God. I pray for a generation of an overcoming church. Listen, church, the church is full of overcomers, man. You're an overcomer. The word of the Lord to you is to overcome. What? Overcome the spirit of this age, the spirit of materialism, the spirit spirit of, of self-idolatry, the overcome that the greed that tries to operate in our hearts. You're in a culture where it's time for you to arise and become the bride of Christ. Lord, I pray right now that you would take us higher than we've ever been. That you, I pray, God, just as the song says, God, that I want to stay a little longer. I want to get to know you a little better. God, I pray that the anthem of our heart will be the testimony of who Jesus Christ is. Can we give him a shout of praise, guys? Hallelujah. You're worthy. If you need prayer specifically on some of these things, you say, Pastor Arnie, I want to be an overcomer. I don't feel like an overcomer right now. I need to understand more about those those messages. I'm going to ask the prayer team just to come up here to the front. We'll agree with you in prayer tonight that God would just speak to you in the late night hours, that this would not be complicated, but it's meant to be understood. That if you've been operating with fear or insecurity about where we are as a nation, I'm here to tell you right now, our best days are ahead of us. It has to be. Because my Bible says we're going from glory to glory to glory. And I'm not talking about superficial Christianity where we all give everybody a bunch of Kool-Aid hype. I'm talking about where we really go from glory to glory to glory because he who sustains us is trustworthy and true in Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Have a good night. If you need prayer, please come. We'd love to pray with you tonight.